Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 142, June of 2021. Our guest this month is Elasia Gray. Elasia is an arts educator and actress from Colorado, whose essay, Why Are There No Great Kids of Color in the Performing Arts, recently appeared in HowlRound. I was completely blown away by both the candor and the complexity of the article. This one essay should be a blueprint for years of theater education and race reform. And because it's a subject near and dear to my heart, I thought we'd start talking about her theater education work with children. It's weird because I think I've, I've actually started working with kids as a kid, and that sounds silly, but literally I remember my first mentorship type of thing was with Big Brothers Big Sisters when I was in high school. So mentoring um, elementary age kids as I was a high schooler and then even doing some of that work in college as actually being a big sister once I was over 18. That's when you can actually be a big, an actual big versus just the mentorship in the school. So, yeah, I had already started in that realm and it wasn't necessarily arts based. And then I kind of just continued on through college. I did a couple of scholarships where I was actually devising arts pieces with elementary age students and middle school students. And knew that it was something that I wanted to be in my path. So started my own kids acting programming, like right when I graduated college. And that was actually the first, not first teaching experience, but yeah, like I was running my own teaching and acting programming for kids before I ever worked for any organization or anything like that. So I'm actually really, really proud of that. And a lot of people don't know that. I think, I think it's absolutely amazing. Working with kids is an endless series of surprises and joys. It's, they, they do say the most remarkable things and they come up with some of the most unbelievable reactions yeah. because there are so few filters with them. And it's like the joy of life personified. I'm sure you must have had moments where you realized, I'm so glad I did this. Yeah, because I think originally... I actually was never interested in teaching kids. Like I didn't really think about it. I think I just fell into it and it was just meant to be where after those first couple of instances, even just in, in my undergrad and doing those devised pieces, I was like, wait, this is, this is something. And then not only that, when I started doing theater for young audiences, which, you know, that's theater that's for literally young audiences is meant for kids. And I even knew when I did my first theater for young audience show, like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite type of theater. I mm-hmm. love doing theater for adults too. Yes, great. You know, making making changes and changing perspective, but for kids, there's something else that happens when they're watching theater, oftentimes for the first time. It's amazing watching them buy into it, you know, sitting in the audience and just see their faces completely wrapped and they are one with the performance. And yeah. sometimes I think that's exactly how theater should be for everybody. Yeah, and 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 it's funny because some people look at children's theater different than I guess regular adult theater, yeah. and it's like, no, the kids are the worst critics. <laughs> like they're gonna, <laughs> they will call you out if a performance was off or you know whatever because they're just making genuine observations in the yeah. moment. They don't have that filter, so it's like, no, 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 they're a tough audience. So you better bring your A game. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. <laughs> You definitely have to bring your A game, especially with kids. Adults say, well, that was interesting. Kids will say, why did you do that? That was stupid. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay, thanks. Exactly. I I came across your essay in HowlRound 
why are there no great kids of color in the performing arts? And I had to read it several times because there was just so much content in there and so many truths that literally that, that article could be a blueprint for, I don't know, studies of, of theater and kids and race relations and equity for years and years and years to come. Um, Thank you for that. You know, it's, it's a powerful article and I think everybody should read that. So let's talk about this. I've done a little bit of research on you and you've written a lot and done a lot about race and theater and how it's a predominantly white institution and what it's like for children of color and people of color to be up to walk into this and to participate. Can you talk about what it was that got this article started? I mean, th there must have been a moment when he said, I've got, I've got to start writing this down and I've got to do this. Yeah, so with this particular essay, it's crazy because I had been writing about some of my experiences, as I mentioned in the essay, with one of the largest arts organizations that I taught at and still dealing with some of the trauma that I experienced there. And I wrote about that at length for just different reasons, um, mm. legal reasons as well. Like it was a really heavy situation mm. and I never put anything out because it was so, it was such a sensitive thing and just so many layers. And like I said, legal things going on that like I never could talk about it, which is another layer of trauma and mm. oppression of like, well, yeah. it was crazy because 2020, I was finally, I guess you could say, free and, and able to talk about those experiences. I still never like mentioned them by name on purpose, but I was also starting my grad program, which is in social and environmental arts. And it's led by Patrice Colors, who's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Right. And so that's amazing. Like to have that be, you know, my professor and leading my program and she's helping lead my capstone right now. Um, and a year that none of us knew was going to be just this year of social unrest and, and the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and just all yeah. these major things that then happened in the year. I just still can't even put that into words. But that being said, I was in one of my early courses in the beginning of the year and we were reading essays called um, titled Linda Noshlin's Why Are There No Great Women Artists? And then Michelle Wallace's Why Are There No Great Black Artists? And uh, Janelle Zara's Why Are There No uh, Great Black Art Dealers? So it was these very provocative titles and we were reading these essays and I'm thinking, what in the world? And so I literally was just writing a reflection assignment about, oh, why are there no great kids of color in performing arts? And so it started, as off, started off as maybe a paragraph of just a reflection. Yeah. And then I was like, oh no, this is a bigger, this is a bigger thing. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of, it took off from there. And I had a lot of support from my professors and my cohort who were just like, no, 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 you should really spend some time with that. And like, don't let it stop at this assignment. And I was like, no, I agree. Yeah. And I only bring up my other, you know, experience because that was another way to actually process some of that experience as well. And in, in putting that in the educators challenges section of like, it's not just kids of color who are experiencing and navigating these things in these spaces, but then also when their educators are experiencing it and then leave those spaces, we're leaving our kids of color to have to fend for themselves in a way, you know, because we are recognizing how toxic it is. Um, and of course, unfortunately, encouraging parents of color, like, don't send your kids there. Like, I'm telling you firsthand experience. I'm telling you what 
students have been experiencing. So this is not an environment I would recommend. And so again, the organization then loses out. That's like, that's their loss that you lose your educators, you lose students of color who aren't comfortable, you sacrifice relationships with parents. So there's just so many layers in the essay, as you mentioned earlier, where, you know, I feel like each section could be its own essay. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, I think that essay could be a grad school, <laughs> could be a PhD course. Thank uh, you. I really appreciate that. You raise so many different issues so so concisely. I started making a list of everything and I realized we'd be here for hours. Um, <laughs> so I'd like to talk about just a couple of the things. And I've had this come up before in previous interviews with theater artists of color on the show. What it's like as a person of color to walk into a predominantly white institution and being an old white guy myself who's been in theater for years, it was, I confess, it was never one of the things that I actually, I had to confront. I walked into theater and that was it. Bing, you know, the world is, is, is a natural, perfect place. Uh, show goes on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I know, right? And having spoken with some people, realizing that there are folks out there who they're not just part of the theater troupe, but they're the only person like them in the theater troupe. And you write about white-centered plays, monologues that do not reflect the world that these folks live in. They're walking in doing stuff meant for other people. And it, it, it amazes me that, that folks can keep going in an arena like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely challenging and... I mean, I'm a person, I'm very optimistic and like generally, you know, positive and I feel like I never limit myself. And I always give this example um, with Sleeping Beauty. So I, I right. made history in my state playing Sleeping Beauty as a black actress um, in 2018. And it's crazy because just implicitly going into that audition, I didn't want to audition. First of all, I wasn't interested in the play of Sleeping mm -hmm. Beauty. Like I just was like, yeah, I don't care about that. <laughs> but the director kept asking me to audition. And I was like, oh, I guess fine. But like, I don't want to be the witch or the, you know, whatever other character mm -hmm. other than the princess. I wasn't even thinking that I would be the princess. And it's not because I didn't think I could play the role. I know I can play the role. But historically, how that role is cast, it was like the furthest thing from my mind that I would even be considered for that role. Yeah. And so when I went into the audition and I kept getting the sides and the script for Sleeping Beauty and of course other characters too, but it kept having me read for Sleeping Beauty. And I'm like, oh. like it was just, I can't even describe how that moment was of just that realization that no, this is real. Like you were, you're reading for this character. And that's happened, I guess, sometimes in other things, but like, I know I'm not gonna get it. Like, it's, yeah. it feels like, I hate to say this, but almost a waste of time to be like, oh, I'm in this audition, but I know I'm not really feeling it. And I can say that, you know, I feel that way with Shakespeare, for instance, I mm -hmm. do not like Shakespeare. I just don't, it doesn't resonate with me. Um, but that's not to say I don't respect it. You know, it's no different than than actors who really love musicals. And then, sure. you know, I'm a person who loves straight plays. I don't really care for musicals. Um, you know, I, I even had the chance to see Hamilton live and I turned it down. I gave my mom the tickets. Like that's how much I'm like, yeah, I don't really care about musicals. You're probably the only person in America who did that. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, no, I'm consistent, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so with Sleeping Beauty, it was just like, when I ended up being cast as that character, it was just such an amazing honor. 
I knew what it would mean for kids of color. I actually mm -hmm. turned down another show that I was also offered at the same time because I was like, no, 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 this, this is important. But with that came a lot of weight in the positive and also mm -hmm. negative with being the only black person in the cast and um, just some conversations that bring comments that were made of castmates sometimes and even kids. And I don't ever fault kids because kids, like you said earlier, say the mm -hmm. darkest things, but you know, I had after a post-show workshop, for instance, a kid being like, well, you don't look like the Sleeping Beauty from the movie. And it was great. Like I say in the essay, I'm like, no, now we can talk to the whole group of like, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know. I think I went all in a lot of different directions with yeah. what you originally asked. But yeah, just that that discomfort sometimes of being an actor of color, especially a black actor, because even that, not all people of color's experiences are the same. And mm -hmm. some people speak to this, that like maybe Asian or Latinx who still get treated a little bit better or different than black actors. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers even with that. And I'm it's not just in like on stage as well, because we're talking about education, but like I'm still literally just got behind a situation within this year yeah. of a workspace where they had to write me a harm to healing letter because of some of the stuff that transpired over the fall as I was teaching for them. And and then they still missed the mark and then used my my negative experience as a case study in a staff meeting. And so like just ridiculous things that continue to occur even after the year we just had in 2020. It takes people a long time to learn things sometimes because they, it just, either they're not properly open to it, they're not listening or they're not empathizing. And I think success rates, especially for issues like this are unbelievably low. Unfortunately, absolutely unfortunately. I think the other wanna... problem is there's a lot of people who think they know it all already. I think that's what I come up against the most is a yeah. lot of these organizations are like, well, we have equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives, and we have anti-racism policies. Sure. And it's like, we read the book, White Fragility, and it's like, no, but you're still actively harming people of color. So just because right. you read the book, if you're not applying what you've learned, or you're not taking a moment, like you said, to listen or take a step back, then you're actually not doing the work. Yeah. Everybody likes to be proactive and they like to they like to get credit for doing something. And I think a lot of this just boils some of it a lot of it boils down to just shutting up and listening and letting other people talk and ingesting, thinking about it, and then finding a way to match that up against the things you've done in your own life. Giving people voice is one of the more powerful tools that can be applied, you know, letting, letting let other people have the microphone. I, I want to get back to Sleeping Beauty because I found that absolutely fascinating. And I'm thinking about what the kids in the audience thought. Were there many kids, were there many uh, children of color? If And what did they think about seeing a black Sleeping Beauty? Did it make a difference to them? Absolutely. They were so excited. And I remember my director told me this like after the show closed and I, it brought me to tears, but he said, I don't know if it was maybe the, one of the first performances because um, we ran for uh, a few months, but he said he saw, you know, a group of kids of color who had came to see the show and just hearing the conversation of them in the lobby before the show and just how excited they were. He said he ran into his office and started crying because it was just that 
beautiful and heavy and just weighted of a moment. And I didn't know that that had happened. Um, I'm tearing up now thinking about it because yeah. it's it's just such a big deal. Um, and I always say, so that year it was Black Panther movie came out as well mm -hmm. around the time. And Meghan Markle and Prince Harry got married as well. So it was like art <laughs> imitating life on stage as well of our interracial couple was happening there's a black princess just like Meghan Markle and you know it was just like a whole situation and so yeah. I know how I felt even just as a, an adult watching Black Panther and knowing I'm playing Sleeping Beauty every day it was just a really incredible moment in time because a lot of people were like oh now maybe we will see when theater reopens but like our our casting decision is going to be different we don't know, but this was something that happened 2018 yeah. um, without being poked or prodded to do so. And I, I, this is important as well because, and you know, I hate to like, when I give personal examples, it's like, but these things happen. And, you know, I had just done an interview recently and right. was talking about how so often I'm worried about other people's feelings when I'm the person who was offended. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, I tend to be vague about the experiences sometimes that I'm talking about. But during Sleeping Beauty, one of my castmates, for instance, asked me if I only got cast because I was black. And I was like, like, why would someone even ask you that question versus like, no, I got cast because I'm talented and I've been working for this theater for a few years. Like, yeah. that's why I'm being hired versus you just thought, oh, maybe because they're trying to do something different and like you're only hired because you're black. You know, it's so it's just such a terrible thing to imply even if it yeah. was a genuine question. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. This is episode number 142, June of 2021. Our guest is Elasia Gray. Elasia is an arts educator and actress whose essay, Why Are There No Great Kids of Color in the Performing Arts, recently appeared in HowlRound. We're talking about the difficulties of being BIPOC in a predominantly white theater world and how we can work to make theater more inclusive and enriching for younger students of color. Well, this, this, this leads me to something else that you've done. And in my research, I knew I sat and I watched uh, your video of Acting While Black. And I probably cringed for the entire time. And it's something everybody should, everybody in theater needs to go watch this right now because there are truths that your castmates will not say to you. There are truths that your friend will not say to you because for very many reasons, all right? They, but this needs to be seen. And it's a list of things that you've endured as a Black actor in theater. Some of them deliberate, many of them not. And it's the ones that are not that just made me shake my head and wonder, were they thinking? What were, not, not what were they thinking, but were they thinking? And I commend you for putting that together and being so truthful and making it available to the public. Yeah. So yeah, that project, and I'm almost, I wouldn't say disappointed in my own self, but I think I need to be pushing that out a little bit more, even in this year, I yeah. probably will, you know, on the heels of my essay and everything. But um, at the time it ended up going on to a national festival. I was a national finalist. So the project came from, it was called the breath project. Um, that was the national festival, but essentially I wrote that piece because at the time, this was probably like last August, August, 2020, 
I was at a point where I, that was the first year I can recall in my whole life that I was like, I don't want to be an artist anymore. Sorry, I'm about to get emotional. Because I was just so tired of my workspaces, castmates, just all of it. And especially in the year we were in. So a lot of those instances I talked about happened that year. So being called the N-word on set and being told, just use it, you know, um, and told I couldn't afford to live somewhere. Um, There were so many instances that I didn't even mention in that video that were taking place simultaneously. Like, you know, literally on a call for work, someone saying, well, how do well, how do I tell you to be black? You know, and it's like, what, are you, what does that mean to you? Like, because I don't have to tell you to be white. So what, like, those are literally still happening all in 2020, you know, and another instance, even just with something that happened on set while I was filming like a series of army training videos and, and some issues being mentioned about my complexion and then me going back and forth with my agent and them just not getting how that was problematic and production and the amount of explaining I was still having to do for people in 2020 was exhausting. And it was like, this is not the time for black people, especially to continue to have to labor through explaining to you why something is wrong or why something is problematic or flat out racist. Mm-hmm. And for you to be defensive about it or, oh my, it wasn't that and minimizing, you know? And so this piece came about because I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a little frustrated and how do I process some of these things? And so here in Colorado where I live, um, they were doing this series called Amplify where it was meant to amplify um, voices of black artists in different disciplines. So musicians, um, actors, dancers. So they did a series where they had uh, 15 black men that they first um, focused on and then they did uh, black women. I was already writing the piece and I was like, oh, I'm going to submit it for that. And so it first appeared in Amplify. And it was great because, again, in some regard, it was me essentially calling out the entire Colorado theater community and not just theater, because I I always try to be clear, like also film, because those things that happen on camera, it's not just theater. It's this industry as a whole. So it was the first time I spoke publicly about a lot of those things, including my former workplace and some of the trauma I experienced. And so even the weight with that, knowing like, you know how many people are going to see this in Colorado who are going to recognize themselves? It happened. So like, it is what it is. And so I went forward with, it was in that series, which got great reception. And then I submitted a shorter version to the Breath Project, which was a call for artists of color around the country to submit pieces that were eight minutes and 46 seconds in honor of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of cut the, the version I had and just sent it over to meet the time frame. And yeah, it ended up getting, they basically did an archive of, of any of the works that got submitted. So even Black with a capital B that I toured with Curious Theater Company, an excerpt of that ended up getting submitted. Um, and so all these pieces were in an archive. And then from that, they t- selected a few finalists. And so my work was one of those national finalists and then it got mm. streamed in a national festival. So it took off even more. And so, yeah, it was just another one of those, like with this essay, really incredible experiences of like, gosh, when I just kind of highlight some of my experiences and be truthful about what those are, the transformative educational value that comes from that is, I don't even have words. So I had a lot of people reach out who recognized themselves, like I said, in the piece, who called and apologized and said, hey, you know, I didn't even realize in the moment, like you said, they weren't thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that was a long way of talking about like how it came 
came to be, but also the two great series that it was in. But as I said, it's one of those things that, you know, I need to probably push out there a little bit more even in this year because it still applies. I think this conversation needs to keep going on and keep going on and keep going on. And we need to keep hearing this. We need to keep remind, being reminded that there are people out there who do not have the advantages that some of the rest of us have, or they do not have the safety of space that some of the rest of us have. And that needs to be talked about and it needs to be reminded and it needs to be part of the culture. And I think the work that you're doing is a remarkable step towards that. I can't even imagine the difficulty. I can't even imagine what you must be going through day by day, but I do have a huge amount of respect for you as an educator and an arts person, especially, you know, you're doing things for kids, which for me is the holiest thing possible. And, you know, Lele's <laughs> acting jam, you know, I mean, working with kids in theater, giving them a chance to express themselves, to be a part of the team without being special, to be but yet having their own uniqueness brought to the table and glorified and worked with and having them feel worthy, that's a gift that not enough people can give. So let's talk about the article. Why the, you know, what can we do so that kids of color can truly be great in performing art spaces? It's, it should be an ongoing conversation all across Theater America. Absolutely. And and how that will translate to not only kids, but then like just adult people of color, you yeah. know, just it starts at that that child age. And you said something earlier too about just kind of enduring these spaces. And I want to even highlight, you know, I've had several colleagues who, whether they read the essay or after seeing Acting While Black or just who know me personally, who are like, I don't know how you stay in this industry. I don't know how you continue yeah. to do it because it is challenging. And then when it comes for, to the kids, though, that's a zero tolerance policy for me. Any type of racism or um, just cultural insensitivity altogether in, in those spaces, I have to call it out. And I think that's, you know, what ultimately happened with my former workplace of, of not being silent. Because there's a lot of people who, especially when you're working at a place that is just very well known and everyone, it's the equivalent to Broadway in your state and people are just happy to be here. That's how the institution also treats you. Of like, no, you should just shut up and be happy to be here. And who cares that, you know, kids are saying they're allergic to Black people and just flag it. I literally was told, just flag it. And I'm like, what does that mean, flag it? What does that, what do you mean flag it? Like, I can't, I can't teach Kids. Is flag a term, a term for forget about it? Yes, essentially of like, you don't want to deal with it. And I want to be really clear too. So the things that kids say that are racist or, you know, I don't fault kids for what they say in some regard, to some extent, yeah. right? Because they're learning that from home. So a great example is one of the things I talk about in the essay um, and in Acting Well Black of a kid saying they didn't appreciate brown skin. That was a five-year-old who said that. And she knew exactly what she was talking about because, you know, I'm also one, I'm not going to jump down a kid's throat. I'm like, tell right. me more about that. Or I, I really try to assess what's happening in the moment. And it was, we were coloring. So it was in regards to a kid was literally using the color, not even brown, but black to color in a character. And he, was, he all week was talking about how black is his favorite color, yada, yada. And the little girl just kept saying, well, no, I just don't think you should be using that. Again, a five-year-old, I'm looking at her, I said, well, let's all just use our imagination and let's just like 
allow people to color how they want. Yeah. And she kept going down the road and then finally said, well, I just don't, I just don't appreciate brown skin. And I was in shock. Like my jaw literally dropped and I was just like, well, I have brown skin. And I remember my teaching assistant, cause that's important too. That's another student, essentially a, a college or high school student that we would have at this particular organization during this time that are watching these things happen too. And he immediately, he was white and he was like, no, we don't talk like that. And then later he asked me, he said, was that okay? Was it okay for me to jump in? And I said, it was actually more important for you to jump in because you look mm -hmm. like her. Yeah. So I can say whatever I'm going to say, but you look like her and she needs to know that not all people who look like her think that way, even right. if that's what she's getting from home. And again, I can't necessarily fault her for what she said, but this child was also one who would not let me touch her during activities. And I didn't even make the connection until she made that comment. And I was like, right oh, this is a bigger thing. So the issue there was, it was a situation where I couldn't talk to her parent because it was like a summer camp at the time. So, or else I would have already made that phone call home. In Layla's acting gym, I would have already been on the phone anytime mm. I'm directing. I, that, that's not even a question. But in this instance, I had to talk to like my education director and I had to go through channels of, hey, this happened in my class today. I would like for you to make a call home or how are we gonna you know, deal with this? And so that's what I received was those flagging and right. oh, we'll just see. And I'm like, no, no, no. And then, you know, proceeding were again, just physical actions done to me by different children after making racist comments. Um, and again, my, what I'm noticing is my workplace is telling me to just suck it up and endure that. And as the only black educator there, especially, you know, in my capacity, meaning I worked there year round for several years, I couldn't just let that go and seeing what that then I and again I say this in the essay I'm an adult and I can navigate that differently but there's also kids who are hearing that and are being said these things too and having some of these actions done and they are not I literally have a student you know a parent who's told me their kid will never go back there based on what they experienced and I told my colleagues at the time I said I don't want this to be a space in theater period should never be a space where kids come in and they find out, oh, today's the day I learned I was different because some right. comment was made to them. And then the adults in the room didn't do anything about it or didn't seem to care about it. Abandonment. It's so it's frustrating. Just... Yes, it's so. And so that's what I mean, too, by the different set of rules in place and the different feelings, whose feelings matter. You know, we're more concerned about having to have a conversation with the white parents because we don't want them to not have their kid come here anymore and we want their dollars. But what about the kids of color who are similarly crying, not wanting to come back? You're fine for them to walk out of the door. Somebody yeah. told me once years ago, when a kid walks into your classroom, it's not the kid, it's the whole household. Yeah. And yeah. you have to deal with that. Uh, it's, you know, I, I taught high school students for a while and it was like every household member was in that classroom with me, just from the things they said and the way they they talked about people who were different. Mm -hmm. um, but you've done so much work. Let's let's talk about Lele's acting jam because I yeah. want to. I, yeah, I know. I I really want to hear how you work with these kids. It, according to what I've 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 read about you, it's these kids have gone on to children's shows. They've, they've gone to professional stages, commercials, TVs, that they've got film credits. It's like you're churning out your own little mini Hollywood here. Um, <laughs> eager, happy thespians being, you know, tossed into the void for fame and fortune. 
Uh, and, we all, and we all know what that's about. But the possibility is anyway, it's a tough business. It's one of the toughest, toughest businesses going. Definitely. But I keep imagining your classroom as one of the happiest places. I would say so. And that's not to toot my own horn, but it's literally the feedback I get from my kids every day, you know, and and so, yeah, as an educator, I teach in a lot of different capacities. So I still currently teach for several organizations, um, both locally, nationally. Um, I'm doing a residency right now this week, plus my Lily's Acting Jam. So I'm always teaching. And I think even that, there's this like level of respect that isn't always there in, in places that I'm an educator for that like I'm saying, I have kids who are who do professional stuff. Like, oh yeah, I didn't even realize, or oh, you know, they know, like you know this, but you just don't want to give me credit for that. Or even, you know, I don't know what that's about. That's, you know, their problem, not mine. But yeah, yeah my, one of the first kids I ever coached since he was five, went on to star on Fuller House. Um, he was one of the main characters. He played Max Fuller and named Elias Harger. And yeah, even, and currently I had a, a quite a few students in a documentary, it started as a verbatim docu-theater piece called Colorado 2020 with Boulder Ensemble Theater Company, where, you know, I advocated even on that project to have the youth. So of all the Coloradans we interviewed and then, you know, took their words and crafted scripts and things like that, I was like, no, 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 but we need to hear from the youth. And so that allowed not only students to have a voice on that project, but then literally my actual students got to play themselves. So it was also an acting gig for them. And I was coaching them, you know, saying their own lines of their own words. And it's like, you got this. When you filmed, you're going to be great. And so, yeah, it's just awesome to, to have, you know, just the different skill levels that I work with of kids. Those kids who are extremely shy, especially when I'm directing children's theater. And, you know, they've never been on stage before. And they're just shaking in their boots. And then by the time they actually do the production and have gone through the rehearsal process, just to see the self-confidence in them is major, just as important as the kids who know they want to act and they excel in it and they're ready to be on stage, no mm -hmm. stage fright. It's like both sides of that coin are, are really incredible to watch and help cultivate. I don't understand that term, no stage fright. <laughs> uh, I envy anybody who, who, can, who can just do it. It's, it's hard. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> You know, I've, I've, these next words, I'm, I'm going to hate saying them, but Alicia Gray, our, our time is pretty much up here. I know you have appointments to get to, and there was so much more that I wanted to talk to you about. You know, your experience in grad school and, and the CO 2020 and the American Alliance for Theater and Education. And oh, my gosh, we, we needed like two more hours. Um, I know. Oh God. Can you for for our audience, please? Uh, because I know people are going to want to find out more about you. How can they do so online? Do you have a website? How can we track down all things Alasia? Yeah, definitely. You can go to my website. It's www.alasia.com. So that's I-L-A-S-I-E-A.com. Um, you can also follow me on social media, Instagram. I'm at Lay Gray. So that's L-A-E-G-R-A-Y. And I'm on Facebook as well. So yeah, I always am always updating all of those things so you can always see what I'm up to. Cool. We will do so. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage Off Stage. On Stage Off Stage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes and Spotify. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. 
Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet, or know someone in the theater who would make really good chat, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening, and please, kids, stay safe. Be careful for yourself and for those with whom we share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you.